Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, that is so powerful, so um, riveting and foundational, Lord, in our lives with you, God. And um, we thank you for um, the blessings that um, you give us, God, just because uh, you, have, you see us through Christ, God, and not as we really are. And we thank you that you give us something to do. You give us a purpose, Lord. And we just pray that you would use um, Jonathan's message today, what he's going to teach us further about this passage, and pray that it would be um, something that we would remember and something um, that um, changes our lives, Lord, today and um, for the future, God. And we put all of these things in your hands today and um, ask your blessing upon our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. So the mercy and great love of God pulls us out of the tomb. So God, in mercy and great love for us, actually pulls us out of death and gives us life. And with all this rain lately, I've been thinking a, a, a lot more about mold. And I think it was probably a conversation with the Bernals that started, like, my, you know, took over some headspace of thinking about mold. Anybody have any mold in their house? Oh, uh-oh. Okay, that's two we're not visiting. No, I'm just kidding. Let's, let's get that dried out. Becca's like, what? We have mold? Becca, it's everywhere. It's okay. It, it, it happens, right? But, so when we lived in eastern Washington before we moved to southern California, we had this really fun little tri-level home. And I probably talked about this space before, but you just have to put up with it, right? And it had this, it was still on the slab, but it was like a crawl space under the main section of the house that you could get to from the bottom level by the, a little doorway. And we built in that space because it had a slab. Instead of just leaving it open, we actually enclosed it, put carpet in there and walls and a bunch of pillows, and we called it the pillow room. 
Because I've just, I've been the type of guy that wanted to grow up and have a room in my house full of pillows where you just hung out, right? Sounds weird. Joyce is like, well, you're weird. But it was, it was great. And Iona loved it, right? It was like her playroom as she was a little kid. And it was a very inviting space. It did not, I remember our senior pastor came and he was down in the pillow room with Iona watching SpongeBob SquarePants. And he may have known in that moment that I was not to be his successor. Um, but that's, it's, it's worked out okay. But it was a very hospitable place. And like everybody got to go into the pillow room. And it was this comfortable, great little place to hang out. Even in the like 2,000 rest of the square feet of the house. Like you didn't need to go there because you could go to the pillow room. Because it was great to hang out. But one weekend though, Stacy decided to power wash the aluminum siding of our house in with the power washer, she spent a little bit of extra, I don't even know what she was trying to clean, but there was just a little corner near the chimney that she gave a little extra grace to as she was cleaning it. But what she did not know at that moment is that the extra water that she was spraying in the space to clean it was actually getting under the house to the crawl space where the pillow room was. Right? And it, it took time. It didn't happen overnight. It started as a faint smell. We're like, did I want to spill something in the pillow room? But she wasn't the guilty party. But eventually, mold made the room inhospitable. And we had to completely remove it. Like we took out the, the framing we had built for it, all of the carpet, all of the wall space. Had to replace a couple of walls in the adjoining bedroom as well. Because mold had taken over that space. It was tragic. It was, you know, maybe that was a sign from the Lord because we sold the house like three weeks later and moved here. So it's perfect, right? But the reality is, as I told Becca, like mold is everywhere. We're breathing mold probably right now. It just like exists. And don't ask Dave Schwantner about this building and how much mold is in it. He'll tell you. There's probably some. But given the right situation, even though the mold spores are floating around everywhere, given the right situation, it can actually become dangerous. Right. And well, it affects everyone a little bit differently. You've all had friends that have been in moldy spaces that have health complications, can't be there. It is in the end, if mold is given its opportunity, it always overwhelms. It always corrupts. It always ruins. And the announcement of our rescue in Ephesians 2, I think, paints the reality of our existence essentially to match the way of mold. That there's just this danger that lurks out there that is bringing and can bring death and ruin, but there is rescue to be found, and that's what we found and see here in Ephesians 2. There is something in the air and the spiritual realm as well as inside of us that leads to death, but there's also an antidote to those things. It is grace that is fresh air to breathe for us. It's protection from biological, environmental, and spiritual harm. There's two movements in the first seven verses of Ephesians 2 that we want to look at today and see the truth there and then the resolution that we've been provided. And the two movements are essentially just life without Christ and life with Christ. Both of them prove that the mercy and great love of God pulls us out of the tomb. And so this is a letter to the churches in Asia, probably a circular letter that went to many different churches and happens to have the name of Ephesians. And the church in Ephesus was certainly 
um, a prized church in relationship with Paul as he was the church planter of this body of believers. And his letter starts off by singing of the goodness of our union with Christ, right? He's declared in the doxology that's come before this that we have been made one with him by faith and all that is Christ is ours for his glory. And that's the backbone of Ephesians, like that truth that we are rooted in union with Christ will carry us through the rest of the chapters of this letter. And here, though, we have what's a a rather unfortunate chapter break. You know, the chapters and verses, they weren't written in to the text when they were written. They came later to help us get to different places in the text. But the text actually flows directly from the exaltation of the power of Christ toward us as the church. And right from that, then we have what is now a second Greek sentence. So all these verses, 10 verses, it's just one sentence in the original language it was written in. And one writer says, in Ephesians 2, Paul takes us down to the death valley of the soul and then up to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And his method is contrast from death to life, heaven to hell, bondage to freedom, from pessimism to optimism. And the journey's contrast will enhance our appreciation of what we have in Christ and will influence the way that we live. So the whole goal of the preaching of this word is to let you see what you were without Christ and now rejoice what you are with Christ. And from that truth, live completely different, committed to bringing him glory and doing the great works that he's prepared for us. This truth begins with bad news. And it is bad news. It's life without Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of humanity is in this children of wrath category because we are under the influence of the world, the devil, and our flesh. And resurrection power comes to this reality. The truth that humanity is dead in sin. Spiritually, we are a corpse apart from Christ. And Paul's really personal here, right? He wants us as the church, to own this story that he is recounting for us. We were dead in our rejection of God. And this is the normative state of humanity without Christ. It's just how we come is rejecting our creator. And apart from Christ and his work for us, we end up dead. That which made us sick, though, has three sources. And those are the three enemies of the soul that Paul declares here. And they're the world, the devil, and the flesh. And each of these tells lies that lead us to reject God and his way. And each produces only death. 
John Mark Comer, Comer, a former pastor, now author, says, Our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc into our souls. We let the mold take hold. Starts with the world. He says, following the course of this world, this is just the drift of the sea. This is what we swim or exist in. This is just everything around us. It's the humanistic system that is at odds with God and his way. This is voices of influence that say to you, just go ahead and follow your truth. Make your preference what is important. Put self above all, right? Jesus will say of the world, woe to the world for temptations to sin, For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And the world produces an endless supply of lies of finally having enough or being enough or not caring enough to be free. And it's exhausting and it's never satisfying. Keeping up with the Joneses in a toxic, unfulfilling way. And I don't know, do we have slides? Do we have the picture? I always try to give you an image. And so this is life without Christ. Desolation, death. There's no fruitfulness here. It's like a fire has come through and and ruined what was meant to be beautiful. The prevailing idols of the world the, the world desires that we worship are essentially money, success, and power. Like those are the key things the world says you should go after. And the Apostle John to the church says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from The world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, remains forever. The world is here just the first in this unholy trinity of tempters. Next comes the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the devil, this spirit with some dominion in the world And this is the cosmic accuser. And we see it in the old stories of scripture, right? Lying, accusing the brethren before God. It's the serpent in the garden convincing, deceiving Eve she should eat of the forbidden tree. Lawrence started us with uh, a text in Job. The story of Job is a great example. Here's the accuser before the throne room in heaven saying, Job is not as faithful as you say, Yahweh. Let me test him. He's the tempter in the wilderness for Jesus, right? He comes for 40 days tempting a spirit with control over demons or fallen angels attempting to ruin humanity to rob God of glory. And the images of the red guy on your shoulder making bad suggestions. Remember that? I I haven't seen that lately, but it used to always be in the cartoons, right? There was an angel and a devil, right? 
But that, that's not really far off from the reality of what happens because the devil works in whispers and the power of suggestion in the spiritual spaces of our lives. Just saying, reject God, get yours, take hold of what you deserve. And the prevailing idols for the devil that he desires for you to worship are any but God, right? It's like, please, make, make an idol out of a tree. Make an idol out of a car. Make an idol out of your job. Make an idol out of your spouse. Make an idol out of anything but your creator. Because all of them lead to death, which is what the father of lies provides. Jesus, condemning the religious Jews that had rejected him, said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the devil is active, like he is our cosmic enemy, right? We should be aware that he is at work. He desires for the failure of the church the failure of the believer and a loss of hope in humanity because then we would be desperate and reject God. So he's active, but he's not wholly responsible. And there, there is another in this unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and a third. Think of the story of the little girl who kicked and pulled the hair of her brother. Which sounds like a terrible thing. I was on Time Hop this morning. Time Hop this morning. Ten years ago, there's a crying baby boy. And the caption says, being harassed by his sister. <laughs> there's only two that could do. Right? But you, you think of this little girl who pulled, a, pulled the hair, kicked and pulled the hair of her brother. And she was caught by her mother. And her mom said, Sally, why did you let the devil entice you to kick and pull your brother's hair? To which the girl responded, the devil only told me to kick him. I came up with pulling his hair myself. Right? That leads into the third tempter. It's the flesh. Paul says, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And this is the sarks, the flesh, the corrupted inclinations, attitude, character within us, without Christ. Jesus was having an interaction about ceremonial washing before meals and washing your hands, right? And he essentially said that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. And in Matthew 15, he says what this, he says, but... What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is spiritual reality that the corruptness of our heart from that moment in the garden, the all of humanity inherits this trait. And it's the flesh that screams, reject God, pursue self over all things. And we are responsible even for the temptation here. 
It's our inherited sinfulness, not as bad as we could be necessarily, but depravity remains the normal state of humanity. We're, we're not that good. And the prevailing idols of flesh are pleasure, hunger, image, pursuing things that make you feel or numbing yourself to avoid feeling. Right? And this is the corrupting of good things, even to excess. And even in the pursuit of them, we are never satisfied, never able. The flesh is never, never able to deliver what our hearts long for. And all it produces in us is shame and anger. So this is what we're up against. This is our existence without Christ. And succumbing to these three enemies, humanity is by nature children of wrath. That We are destined for judgment before the holy God. All of us. Pursuit of self always leads to death spiritually and eternally. One of the church fathers, Marius Victorinus, what a great name. He says, death is understood in two ways. The first is the familiar definition, when the soul is separated from the body at the end of life. And the second is that while abiding in that same body, the soul pursues the desires of the flesh and lives in sin. And Paul's saying that that is death experienced right now, when you have been under the authority of the world, the devil, and your flesh. Apart from Christ, you are dead. The dead, those without Christ, are dominated by the world, the devil, and the flesh. And the world dominates from without, the flesh from within, and the devil from beyond. And these are the terrible dynamics of spiritual death. It's a lack of hope, it's shame, it's bitterness. The lack of fulfillment. John Stada, old pastor, says we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert that person may be, is living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. Because of this, apart from Christ, we are totally lost. Even in our best moments, we are far from what we are meant for. So profound is human depravity that near the end of Paul's uh, doctrinal argument in Romans 3, he says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And he's casting this wide net to say that everybody is apart from God. And he quotes Psalms in a number of different Psalms. And he says in Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is life without Christ, right? This is just us in need of rescue. I was trying to think of, like, well, what's the image, right? And it's that picture of desolation of charred trees and ruin that kind of encapsulates for us or expresses what life without Christ is like, that it's just desperate. And I thought back to the never-ending story. Anybody remember that? Gen Xers, Gen Xers, remember, never any story. Swamp of Sadness. 
right? What was the horse's name? Anybody remember? Extra credit. I want all you millennials to go home and stream the never-ending story. Stacy's like, no, it's awful. But there's this swamp of sadness that if you get sad, it like sucks you in and the horse is sad in the movie. It's a cry moment. Did you cry when we watched that? You know, I don't know. You watched it with me. I don't remember ever watching it. Yeah, it's probably good. You blocked it out. <laughs> right? Or for those of the literary vibe, think of the slew of despond, right? In the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian sinks under the weight of his guilt in that moment and needs to be rescued. And we could just end there, right? Like, who's got brunch? You know? Like that's, it's the reality of our existence. And sometimes we shy, even in the church, we shy away. It's like, let's not be harsh. Like, let's be more chill. Let's just invite people to meet hippie Jesus and just be cool, right? But this is the description of life apart from Christ. It is death. Like, there's some really nice people that are dead at this moment because they reject Jesus and his claim over them. They've followed after the world, the devil, or the flesh as priority, as God in their life. And scripture is abundantly clear, and many of us from experience of our own life know that those things only produce death. And it's terrible. It's bad news. And when things seem to be darkest without hope, though, something happens that leads to life with Christ in the text. I highlighted it in my paper Bible. Are you paper Bible people? You should circle, highlight. Because this is life with Christ. Paul says, you were dead, but God. And here's, oh wait, yeah, go back. This is beautiful. This is life. There's vibrancy. There's light. There's the wonder of life being looked up upon, right? This is life with Christ. And the truth is, as one writer says, we are not strugglers in need of a helping hand or sinking swimmers in need of a raft. We are stone cold dead, spiritually lifeless, without a religious pulse, without anything to please God. But he loves the loveless, gives life to the lifeless, and is merciful to those that deserve no mercy. Amen. And here's what Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This may be the most important sentence in all of the New Testament. That's right. The truth of who you were before and then what happened that made you Different, And this is the difference. This is from death to life, done by God in mercy and love. And when you believe in Jesus, this is what frees you to do so. The mercy and love of God extended toward you. It's what awakens you to God in his way. The gospel, his power toward you in Christ. And Paul's description of salvation of believers here is thoroughly God-centered, right? Because you, you notice, you were dead, but then you rolled over one day and you pursued Jesus. So not what Paul says. You were dead, but then some indigestion from the pizza you had last night got you to call out to God. That's not it. It is solely the work of God. But 
God, rich in mercy and love toward you, brings you to life in Christ. God initiates our salvation. His love and mercy motivate it, and his grace grounds it. It keeps us, and ultimately the display of God's grace is the purpose of our salvation. Right? For the glory of his grace, we saw in chapter 1, that all these things are unfolding. And so when it comes to you being dead and now finding life because God intervened and worked on your behalf, it is all for the praise of his glory. And it's just who God is. When people walk away from Scripture and from interaction with Christians with all kinds of view of who God is. But you need to know this is the clearest declaration of who he is. A God that is merciful and loving. And this is the good news that beats out the bad. This is course-altering, life-giving grace for us. Because what we bring into the equation is just death. It's burden. It's the weight of sin and shame. And what are we given? We are made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. It's the exact same things that we sung of in the doxology before his that happened to Jesus. He gave of his life and he's raised up and he's seated in the heavenly places above all authority. And due to our union then with Christ, God accomplishes three key events spiritually for believers that he did for Christ. He first makes us alive. The New Testament scholar Marcus Barth says that in the majority of occurrences in the New Testament, the verb to make alive is a synonym of to raise from the dead. Man is radically dead and he can be saved only by a radicalness of resurrection. And the work of Jesus defeats our enemies and gives us life dead to the old things we are, alive to the newness in Christ. And when God works, when the but God moment comes, we possess a living relationship with him, as Paul will say in Romans 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because what's true of Jesus is now true of you in the mercy and love of God applied for you. I'm going to take some water. Just sit with that. Everything that Jesus experiences from his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is now yours in him. You were dead, but he made you alive together with Christ. Paul says he also raised us up. We presently experience spiritual resurrection Life. The resurrection of our physical bodies will come when Christ returns, but we are at this moment living eternal life now. Resurrection life now. And taken positionally, we are brought out of the world, out of slavery to sin, and have been transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
This means that because of Christ's resurrection, those who believe in him are giving new life spiritually in this age. We call it regeneration. Our hearts have been made new. But we will also be given renewed physical bodies when Christ returns. We're going to have a future resurrection. Phil's got a shirt with a chart on it that says, here's all the things that need to happen before Jesus returns. And some of you know my love for charts. That's, I'm being sarcastic. But on the chart, the last thing on the chart that needed to happen was Stephen Tyler comes to Christ. I didn't even know that, but praise God, right? He came from death to life. And he, if he is in Christ, he's going to get a new body. He's going to have a resurrection body. We're all headed there. Bill just went under the knife this week on your mouth. Cuts you off. But he made a comment. and was like, well, why, why is this happening? And he said to Phil, he's like, age, I'm getting old. Oh, but praise God for eternity, you're not going to get old. You're going to be made new. You're going to look like Levi again. <laughs> the younger self. I'm glad you all know that Levi is his spitting image, his son. That's why you all laugh. That's perfect. Right? But that's where we're headed. I don't know if I'm going to be fat or not. But I won't care. Because I'm going to be resurrected with Christ for all of eternity. Experience the aliveness, the bringing us in, the raising us up, the seeding us that he provides for us. That's the third piece, right? Being seated with Christ. We share in his victory over the demonic powers right now. This is not in the notes, but I've interacted with some folks talking about spiritual warfare, right? And we we are at war with the war of the devil in the flesh, right? And there's some, and we interact, and we can, I'm going to have to have a class on this now, because some of you are going to be like, what? Right, but I always, like I get really, it feels like I need a class, I'm ready. But I always get really concerned when we, we give the demonic so much power, right? And we're like, oh, well, Christians can be demon, can be possessed. No. You are in Christ. You, you, have, you share with his reign. You have, there are ways in which your life you can be believing lies, you can cling on to. And there are, there is, you know, Steps to freedom that you can, get, you can get just separated from that. You can get free by the truth of what Christ has done for you. And Christ reigns over all things. Yes. And so you need to know as you go into the soup of the world, the mold that is out there, you are in Christ. You are protected. You are kept. You are spiritually enlivened. And you have nothing to worry about. Because you're seated with him. You're no longer obligated to follow the world, the devil, and the flesh. You can follow Jesus. And God has allowed his people, even now, to share in a measure of the authority that Christ has, seated at the right hand of God. We have a spiritual ascension with him. With spiritual resurrection comes ascension to the heights of heaven. Though not yet there physically, we Christians are already in the heavenlies by the virtue of our union with Christ. Spiritually, we are seated on the throne along with other believers and the powers of the spiritual realm have been brought to bear on our present life. They are under the footstool of our king. You are secure in Jesus. You are as secure as he is at this very moment. 
And if you think Jesus can be possessed by a demon, then, oh, we got to cast something out of you. Gently. Because he's above it all. And Jesus shares his victory over the enemies of our soul with us. And this is true of us in Christ. This is what Paul is declaring. We were dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know somebody's got a bubbling up. Amen. Krista, amen. She just let it out. I mean, this is, this is, this is it. This is dynamite. This is enlivening. This is being rescued out of death. It's not like I just got a, I got a middle-class upgrade. I went from the white Tesla to the red one. No, you were dead and you are now alive in Christ. This changes everything. I can't even articulate how wonderful it is. And it's then essential that followers of Jesus stay rooted in this rescue. This is why Paul roots it here at the beginning of the letter, because everything else that follows will flow from this reality. And we need to be rooted in the reality as well, that we would fight the lures of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And that we would love each other well and that we would learn to love and serve others out of that new life we've been given. Clinging to Christ, united with him, experiencing the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. Receiving wave upon wave of grace, new mercies every day. No longer of the world, no longer a slave to the lies of the devil or a flesh that is now being made new. Grace that is sufficient for us, that satisfies what we long for. There are still battles and that will... We'll talk about it. There's more to come about this war that we're in the midst of in this letter to the Ephesians. And we still renounce the world, the devil, and the flesh. But we battle from the reality that is preached here by Paul. We were dead in sin, but God. We're going to sing a song by Shane and Shane. Maybe you've heard it. It's called You've Already Won. And the lyrics go, there's a peace that outlasts darkness, hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow for tomorrow's in your hands. All I need you will provide just like you always have. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I'll overcome. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. Paul says there was a battle and you died. But God in mercy and love toward you has brought you to life. And because Christ has already won, you are secure in him. The mercy and great love of God pulls us out of the tomb. It pulls us out of the pit. It pulls us out of the dumps. It pulls us out of the darkness, out of slavery, out of indifference and despair and into life in him. Things around us may still be moldy, but a day is coming when the air will be clear once for all. So friends, choose Jesus. His way is life, purpose, eternity. Renounce the ways of the world, the devil, and the flesh, and commit to the way of 
Jesus. It's what you were created for. To his forgiveness and new life. And then experience grace. It's the air we breathe in Jesus. It's unmerited favor. You are given what you could never deserve. Security, identity, kindness of the merciful and loving God toward us in Jesus. Where there was no pulse, God intervened and brought life. May we see it, savor it, and showcase it for his glory and for our good. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reality that we were living under the reign of the world, the devil, and our own flesh, but that you, in mercy and great love toward us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Or for some of us in this space, we may still be pursuing those lies in the things of the world, the devil, and the flesh. We just ask that by your Spirit you would awaken us to the reality of your grace toward us, that you would empower us to reject the world, the devil, and our flesh and follow in your way. And Lord, for those of us that are in Christ, rooted in him, we believe his life, death, and resurrection were for us. Center us on the truth of our union with Christ. That come what may, we would be steady and sure, as secure as Christ is. For your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.